time for the Retirement Roadmap Podcast with registered financial consultant, Glenn Mosseller. Hello and welcome to the show. Walter Storholt here alongside Glenn Mosseller, ready to bring you another great podcast on the program today. Glenn, how are you this week? I'm doing well, Walter. How about you? Glad to hear that. I'm also well and looking forward to our conversation today. We're going to dive into talking about some of the biggest financial myths that are out there. And we're going to spend some time on today's show busting those myths. So put your myth buster hat on, Glenn, and get ready to tackle some of these misconceptions in the financial landscape. Uh, Do you ever watch that TV show back in the day, by the way, the Mythbusters show? No, I, I remember the Ghostbusters movies, but I <laughs> don't do them. I never did the Mythbusters. It was a good. It was a good show. It was two very like sciency guys, very eclectic personalities, and they would just take you know listener or, or viewer submitted myths, and then uh-huh. they would try to bust those myths. And so they would come up with all sorts of crazy experiments to see if they could bust the myth. I mean, and some of them would just be really like simple or funny, like uh, but things you always wondered about. Like uh, I think one of my favorites was. If it's raining outside, do you get more wet or less wet if you try to run through the rain to get inside? Um, and so they did a whole bunch of experiments to determine, you know, what was what was the truth. And, and so the, the idea was if you run, you'll make it inside faster and thus you'll be less wet. And what they actually found, they busted that myth and said you actually get less wet if you just walk inside versus running inside. Now, of course, there's some other variables and factors, but a general straight down rain, they found that you actually get less wet walking instead of running, which I thought was interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. They did another one, I think, where it was uh, people drive with their tailgate down thinking that they're in you know, better gas yeah. mileage. They actually right. found that keeping the tailgate up, you got better gas mileage. Actually created less drag. Just stuff like that. And then they did obviously some really bizarre ones. But in any event, we're going to talk about some of these myths that are in the financial world. Here's the scary thing. Some people are basing their life savings and their entire financial plan on some of these myths. And that's why they're so important to be busted today. The stakes are higher than just you get a little bit more wet if you're running through the rain. (laughs) So here's the first one for us to tackle, Glenn. Uh, It's a widely held belief that shifting from stocks to bonds removes the volatility from your portfolio, why would we classify that as a myth that needs to be busted? You know, you have to remember that um, that bonds are also a market, right? And that means they move, um, you know, with different market dynamics. You know, interest rates can go up, interest rates can go down, and that plays a role in terms of the value of those assets. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about the bond market is, is that, you know, there's this inverse relationship between interest rates and the price of the underlying bond. And what I mean by that is, is that as interest rates drop, the value of the bond can go up. Right. And so that's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of folks. But you kind of just think about it. It's like, let's say you had a four percent bond. You bought it and you were you were going to plan on you know collecting the interest, you know, over the next number of years until maturity. You would get your money back and then you would do whatever you were going to do with that principal again. Let's assume for the moment that well, what happened was is you bought that and you're getting paid four percent and then interest rates dropped to three on that type of bond. So now you're you know, sitting there and going, wow, you know, it's at three. And so if you needed or wanted to sell that, what would happen? What would be the dynamics of that? 
Well, the reality is, is that yours is paying four and the new, you know, what's what's out there in the marketplace right now is only paying three. So yours is actually worth more than what's out there in the marketplace. So you could actually sell yours for a profit or a gain in that you would be pricing it in such a way that it would be yielding the next person three. On the other hand, if interest rates go in the other direction and they went from four to five, and you know you're you're looking to have to sell or want to sell that and you're collecting four and anybody who shows up in the marketplace can get five you know well they probably don't want yours that's paying four so if you really needed or wanted to sell that then you're going to have to sell it at a discount so it yields the next person five so there's this inverse relationship that's going on and so a lot of times people say well you know it's it's just one percent or whatnot but really if you stop and think about it a one percent move on something that's that is only is yielding somewhere around four well i mean that's a bigger percentage move than if you were basing it off of a hundred and so all of a sudden folks say oh wow that, that is a big difference and so you got to really think i mean small moves in the interest rate market can change the value of bonds pretty dramatically so we kind of think in terms of well if we drop back in time we go back into the late 1970s early 80s everybody remembers that when interest rates were incredibly high you know we had double digit uh, interest rates that were, you know, if you, you if you were a CD investor at that time, I mean, you were incredibly happy because you were getting a lot of interest with no risk at all, just letting it sit in the bank. But if, you know, if you were trying to buy a house, you had this enormous, you know, interest rate on your mortgage. Everybody remembers those times. And then over time, interest rates have been falling for literally decades. And so now we're in a place where interest rates are flirting with the lows of, of where we've been in the last 30 to 35 years. You know, we're looking to see, well, if our interest rates going to start moving higher. They, they began to a little bit ago, a few months ago, and then they came back down. And so there's a lot of volatility right now in, in that the environment. So we got to think in terms of does that really, you know, cause you to have no risk? Well, no, there's there's certainly risk there. And so you have to assess that. And some of the other things that come into play there is how long is the bond, you know, or in meaning, you know, what's the duration, you know, the longer it stretches out, if you got trapped into a low interest rate that was extended out there for many, many, many years or many decades and interest rates started to go higher, you could really lose a lot of money. So you got to really, you know, pay attention and understand how that really works, you know, and historically there's not been as much volatility and there tends not to be as much volatility um, in, in the bond markets. However, that being said, we remember times when interest rates really took off and started running. And if we get into a high inflationary time and that that could certainly happen again. So just be aware and be careful about how you're positioning those funds, when, especially when you're moving into retirement. It's interesting. Some of these investments like, uh, you know, bonds, they're they're kind of a boring investment, right? I mean, they don't get any of the sizzle that stocks or mutual funds or ETFs or anything like that get. And it, it kind of reminds me of the, the 2008 financial crisis was caused by something else that was very boring. Uh, you know, mortgage-backed securities, like who would yeah. have ever thought that would have become something exciting? Um, so, you know, or, or interesting or have some sort of great impact or effect on the, the landscape and the market around us. But even right. even some of these things that don't get all the attention still carry with them some weight and some impact on our plans. And um, no doubt about it. Bonds is certainly one of those things. Uh, another myth here, Glenn, is that once you retire, life insurance is uh, no longer necessary. Kind of just a blanket statement that eh, once you're retired, why have life insurance anymore? That's the widely held belief. Why is it a myth? 
Well, Walter, again, I mean, we've talked in many in many previous podcasts about, you know, how there is really no such thing as a one size fits all. And so life insurance, I think, fits into that category. You know, when we're thinking about life insurance in general, most people think of death benefit and most people think of, well, I'm going to have life insurance while I'm in my working years. One of the biggest reasons is, well, well, if something happens to me, it'll pay off the house or it may, you know, help to pay for the kids college education and whatnot. And those are a lot of times what people think about in, in how they would use life insurance, you know, if they're in their younger years or in their saving years. You know, a lot of times you really need to be thinking about, too, in those times, it's, it's about income replacement, right? And so when you move into retirement, well, you say, well, you know, hey, I've saved for retirement and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of my retirement income is, is in place, isn't it? And for some folks, it is. And some folks, it's not as much as you might think. It really depends upon how much have you saved and where have you saved it. And I, what I mean by that is, is that oftentimes folks have saved a, a lot of money into 401ks, traditional IRAs. And of course, what do we know about those types of accounts? Uh, you know, we know that those accounts are tax deferred or in other words, tax postponed, meaning that you're going to pay the taxes or it's going to be subject to taxation when you pull the money out. And so what happens if tax rates end up moving higher? You know, a lot of folks believe that that's going to be, you know, the, the reality, you know, with the debts and the deficits that this country is carrying. And if the government decides to, you know, to raise tax rates, that could really impact those types of accounts. What happens if one person passes away and they leave a surviving spouse? Well, then what ends up happening is, is we lose income, right? We lose normally in most cases, we lose at least one Social Security check possibly part or all of a pension, what else happens? The surviving spouse might be able to hold on to all of the IRAs and 401k type money. However, when they turn around in the next year and they have to start filing their taxes and they start filing as a single person rather than married filing jointly, suddenly their tax brackets got cut in half. And so now all of a sudden, they're, even if tax rates don't go higher, they find themselves oftentimes in a higher tax bracket just because of the change in the dynamics of how you're filing for your taxes as a single person versus married. And if tax rates do go higher, that will be amplified that much more. And so what do we know about life insurance is, well, life insurance, the death benefit is largely going to be tax free. And so that can oftentimes help offset some of those situations where you might have, you know, uh, you know, some impact to the surviving spouse's income, as well as is that if you're if you're trying to leave a legacy for kids and grandkids, it's nothing simpler for them to be able to inherit than a death benefit that really all you do is you, you know, you send the death certificate to the insurance company and they send you a tax free death benefit. And oftentimes, you know, folks really like the idea of being able to do that for, you know, to leave a legacy. So you really have to, you know, evaluate what is your situation really looking like? Is there any reason why you might want to have life insurance? One other kind of, um, you know, thought in terms of life insurance is, is that some of the newer types of life insurances have riders that you can actually utilize the death benefit for some, you know, so chronic care or long-term care you know, while you're still alive and most people are worried about their long-term care expenses or at least the possibility of long-term care expenses and they don't necessarily like the idea of paying for a long-term care policy that just pays premium, pays premium, pays premium and then if they passed away and never used it, the insurance company keeps all that money Whereas if they had a life insurance policy that kind of you know did double duty so to speak, if it, you know if they had the proper type of life insurance, 
if they needed long-term care, then it would be there for them. And if they didn't, then again, that death benefit can you know transfer on to those that you care about. So there can be a lot of uses for life insurance. And I wouldn't just, you know, say, well, you know, I've retired, so I don't need that anymore. You know, you really want to do the evaluation and see, does it make sense for you? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It's not a one size fits all in either direction. You know, for some folks, it makes a lot of sense. And for others, maybe not so much. Busting some big financial myths on today's podcast. That's another one. Life insurance no longer necessary when you retire. Not necessarily. Another one here, Glenn, you'll need less income when you're retired compared to when you were working. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people talk about that. And, you know, and I sit down and I have lots of conversations with folks and and that's a widely held belief. And that might be true for some folks. But, you know, when I start having conversations with people and I say, you know, well, well, tell me a little bit about, you know, your spending habits. And they go, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, what days of the week do you tend to spend the most money? And they stop and think a little bit and they say, well, that's probably on the weekend. And I said, yeah, that's right. So when you're, you know, when you're working during the week, you know, you're, you're working, you're actually earning money and not spending money. But when you have extra days off and you have like holidays or take a vacation, do you spend more money than you would, you know, during the week when you were working? And they say, oh, yeah, I kind of get it. I tend to do that. And I think everybody tends to do that. And so when you retire, you know, a lot of times when I'm having conversations with people who've retired, they'll they'll ask me, well, what day is it? Because they all start blending in together and every day seems like a Saturday and a Sunday. So you got to be careful. It's like, you know, will you really spend less money? And, you know, when you retire, you know, some people will and some people won't. Some people actually start spending more. And so you really got to be aware of, you know, what is a realistic spending plan for you and, a, and an income need plan for you? And, you know, what is going to be the likely scenario? And you can kind of start looking at that in terms of, you know, sometimes when the early years, you know, right after you retire, you might spend a little extra money and, you know, you, you might take a few extra trips and do some more things. Maybe later on in retirement, as you, you know, age some more and maybe get up into your 80s and so forth, maybe you don't do as much. So, you know, you just kind of have to think about, well, how am I going to spend money? Where am I going to spend money? And, you know, is it only going to be on essentials or is there going to be other things that I'm going to spend money and want to spend money on? And then kind of step back and, and reassess. It's like, what is your situation going to look like? And what do you and your spouse want to do as you retire? Uh, it's interesting that you have all of these widely held beliefs and on paper, they may make sense. But then in reality, when you meet with couples and meet with people that are planning for retirement and you start actually seeing what real life looks like, uh, so often these get debunked uh, right there in front of you. I think there's also speaking of, you know, things that'll be different when we retire. There's also this belief that you're going to be in a lower tax bracket when you retire. Boy, that seems less and less likely these days. Yeah. Well, Walter, I mean, that, that's true for some people, but tends to be the situation is, is that the more that you've saved for retirement, the less that's likely to be true. And what I mean by that is, is that typically folks who have saved the most probably made pretty good wages throughout their working years. And so they tend to have, you know, pretty good um, Social Security benefits. And then we start thinking about, well, how does Social Security get taxed and does it get taxed? And it gets taxed based on how much other income you have. So if you have any kind of a pension or if you have 
IRA money or 401k money that, that you're either going to plan to take out or if you reach the place of required minimum distributions and, you're, and you basically kind of have forced income, all of a sudden then your Social Security is going to potentially be more subject to taxation because you have more other income and oftentimes you find yourself, well, golly, I've got as much taxes as I, as I had you know, before when I was working because my income you know, has, has bumped up, if, if not before, certainly for a lot of folks, when, once they start having to take those required minimum distributions and certainly if tax rates were to go higher into the future, that becomes a that becomes a challenge as well. But back to the point we were making earlier, in the vast majority of cases, you know, in most married couples, one person is going to predecease the other, and there's going to be a surviving spouse almost always. And in that scenario, what happens? Well, when you start filing as a single person, your tax brackets are going to get cut in half you know, versus where they were when it was married filing jointly. So oftentimes, you know, taxes, you know, at some point tax rates are going to go up almost regardless as to whether or not the government raises tax rates or not because of the fact that you end up being, there's a surviving spouse and suddenly I don't have as much room before I get to the next tax bracket and suddenly you're in a higher tax bracket again. So we got to really think about, you know, what is your tax situation likely to look like? And that gets into the overall planning of income, tax planning, legacy planning, and everything that goes into, you know, when, when we're thinking about what is your exit strategy as you're trying to take money out of these retirement accounts? You know, if you just, you just kind of, you know, just wander into it and maybe if you saved a lot of money and you've worked really hard to save a lot of money, you certainly want to try to see, you know, have strategies to try to get that money out in the most efficient manner. And that's, of course, the type of planning that we, that we help folks with. So important to analyze all these different things as you're putting together your own financial plan. One last one here, Glenn, would be financial planning today. You know, it's just overall a lot easier to do without professional help because we've got all this technology and research that we can do on our own. Yet people keep coming through your door. So I don't know how true that one is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing, Walter. I, I mean, I think a lot of the technology that's out there, I mean, obviously it's a good thing, but you always have to be careful because it's like, you know, sometimes you get a little bit of information and sometimes it's not quite the full picture. And so you've got to be aware of that. I think everybody knows that, whether it be financial information or anything else. But typically, when you're looking at a lot of the technology, it's still around saving for retirement and not actually living in retirement. You know, the, most of the um, financial services industry is oriented around, you know, saving for retirement and putting money into investments and to look at taking that money later or maybe never taking it out, you know, and just and just letting it build and build and build. And, and that's certainly true when you're in the accumulation years. But when you're transitioning to the preservation and distribution years, it's another story and strategies about how to take distributions and and when to take distributions and what account and how have you positioned your money. Those kind of strategies and that type of planning is, you know, much more, you know, um, very specific to a particular individual. And also, as we well know, is, is that there's more to it, you know, in trying to get money out than there is to saving. Now, obviously, it takes a lot of discipline to save for retirement. But if, you know, if you have like, you know, payroll deductions or automatic drafts out of your account to put money into those accounts, I mean, it becomes just like an automatic thing. 
Whereas when you start taking money out, it's not quite as simple as that because if you start thinking about, well, if I average this rate of return, then I'll sh I should still be okay until you start thinking about the fact that, well, what happens when, when the values of your accounts drop when the markets go down and you're actually taking money out? Then what you always thought about with dollar cost averaging when you were putting money in, you're actually having reverse dollar cost averaging when you're taking money out. In other words, if the value of your account is down and you have to start taking distributions out for income, either because that's part of your plan or because you have required minimum distributions, suddenly in that case, when things are down and you're having to sell more shares at lower prices, you start looking, oh, wow, that's a dynamic that really never occurred when you were saving for retirement. So, you know, you really have to think in terms of, do you have the wherewithal, the knowledge and access to all of the different financial products and whatnot that are out there that can help you, you know, preserve that money and, you know, make sure that it lasts through a lifetime. And, and most folks find that it's like, that's a much harder task than it is to just keep putting money away and, and trying to look for the next best investment, because it's really about how do I get this money out and how do I make it last? Does that make sense, Walter? It does make sense, Glenn. Any other big myths that you see that we should bust on today's show, or did we cover all the big ones? I think most of the time when we're talking about planning for folks, I mean, you know, there's there's myths and, and misconceptions and whatnot. But, you know, really, a, a lot of the planning comes down to, you know, do you have adequate hedges, you know, against the major risks that you're likely to face in, in retirement? And, you know, just to kind of recap a lot of the things that we've talked about in many, many previous uh, you know podcasts is, is that, you know, what are those big risks that are potentially can take lots of money away from you very rapidly? you know, in retirement. And certainly the one that we were just talking about, you know, if you had to take withdrawals out while your account values were down. So, you know, those distributions in a variable type of an account, that's a big risk, you know, and you've got to be aware of it. It's like, okay, if it's outside of your awareness, you need to bring it inside of your awareness so you can understand how do we navigate, you know, those treacherous waters. You know, the other things that pop up is, is like, well, what about taxes in the future? Is our government likely to raise our tax rates? Some would argue yes, and some would argue, well, maybe not so much. I mean, there's a lot of evidence out there, and everybody's got to kind of come to their own conclusion. But I think it's it's wise to plan for the worst and hope for the best. And if, you, if you're planning on that, then you want to be doing some tax planning because I've never met anybody that wanted to send extra dollars to Washington, you know, just because, right? I mean, everybody wants to be as efficient as they can be. And then certainly, again, when we start thinking about long-term care. That's the other one where you could, where a lot of money can go out, you know, very rapidly. And so when we start thinking about, well, how are you going to hedge that risk? Are you going to self-insure? Do you have some other plan that you've put in place with some insurance policies in the past? Maybe, you know, if, if not, then, then maybe that's something that we need to start to look at and ways to be able to hedge that in an effective way. And certainly with certain products that are out there, like we talked about earlier, there are situations where we can actually utilize products, you know, that, that can play a dual role. And so you don't necessarily have to set money aside that is only there for long-term care. And if you don't use it for long-term care, then it goes away. You know, the industry has evolved a lot. And now there's, there's a lot of products out there that we can look at and we can look at your 
particular situation. And there are a lot of times there's effective ways for us to hedge against those risks where a lot of times people just believe that's just something that I'm just going to have to take my chances on. Well, that's not really the case. I mean, in, in most cases, there's efficient ways to hedge against those types of risks. So, you know, if you have any questions in your mind, certainly, you know, think about giving us a call and let's get together and let's do a discovery meeting and let's look at your situation and see, you know, are you exposed to unnecessary risk that could uh, just by you know doing some repositioning, we could preserve and protect you a little bit better than maybe what you are at this point. Well, if you need some assistance and want to talk to Glenn about maybe some of these myths that you've built your financial foundation on, do you need to tweak that going forward? Might be a good idea to not procrastinate any further and not continue to plan under some of these incorrect assumptions. All you have to do is give a call to Glenn at 336-291-3535 with your questions. That's 336-291-3535. Or go online to greensbororetirement.com. That's greensbororetirement.com. Look for the free consultation button at the bottom of the page, and you can schedule a time to meet right there from your smartphone or computer. greensbororetirement.com. Glenn, great job busting these myths. You'd have never known that you hadn't seen the Mythbusters show before. You would fit right in with the crew. All right. That's good to know, Walter. (laughs) We'll look forward to another great podcast with you next time around, Glenn. Until then, thanks for taking the time out to join us. We'll talk to you again soon, right back here on the Retirement Roadmap Podcast. 